0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. I am John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is having a plumbing emergency, so she will not be joining <laughs> us today. Uh, but we are very happy and proud to have joining us today Fred Kagan. Uh, AEI scholar, fellow person, uh, Christine's colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, and director of its Critical Threats Project. Uh, Fred, um, it's great to have you. Uh, One of the amazing things in my life is the fact that I think I first met you. When you were 13 years old, and now, you know, and now you know more about the most important things on earth than I've ever learned or will ever forget. So I was in my 20s, you were 13, and you have now lapped me, overtaken me, and become uh, one of the most uh, important analysts in Washington. So let's talk about what you know best, or not what you know best, but what you know best among us and at this moment, which is the 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 war between Russia and Ukraine. I asked you to come on uh, before we heard about the uh, errant uh, missile uh, hitting Poland, uh, which we can get to later. But I, what I really wanted was for you to explain this, you know, amazing headline. I guess Friday or Saturday that the that the Russians who had declared, I think, in September that they would. They would forever be in uh, Kherson City, in the oblast of Kherson, um, and uh, this, and they ran a referendum, and they they annexed it, and all of this, and they were driven out of the city. Announced they were leaving. The Ukrainians came in. There was a Paris-like celebration of liberation. It was an amazing sight. Can you give us sort of like your fill on your your take on what happened there and what it what it means in terms of the war? Sure. Well, first
1: of all, uh, thank you, John, for uh, having me on. It's uh, I I do remember meeting you actually at a tender age, <laughs> um, and uh, you've been a you've been a, a great friend of the family and of course a great contributor to our national discourse um, ever since then. So it's a pleasure to be on uh, on your show. Um, the Look, the liberation of uh, Western Kherson Oblast is extremely important uh, for Ukraine. It's strategically vital terrain because it's the only land that the Russians had been able to take on the western bank of the Dnipro River. And the Dnipro runs all the way from the Ukrainian northern border to the Black Sea. And it's a major river uh, virtually its entire distance. So it's a significant obstacle. If the uh, lines had become frozen with the Russians still in possession of a lodgment on the Western bank, then the next Russian invasion would have had an enormous advantage and the Russians ability, even without invading to interfere with Ukrainian coastal, uh, Ukrainian maritime traffic from uh, the Ukraine's last remaining major port of Odessa uh, would have been very high. So this was strategically vital terrain. The Ukrainians have been setting conditions to uh, take it without destroying the city for many months, and this is an important uh, point to note. You know, the Russians, of course, uh, in, in invading in the in the name of saving Ukrainians from their own government, uh, have been content to obliterate uh, Ukrainian cities like uh, Mariupol and Zhyvotynetsk. Uh, which they just leveled with artillery. The Ukrainians are not content to liberate their own cities as piles of rubble. And so one of the reasons why it took a long time for the Ukrainians to uh, take Kherson was because they wanted to do it in a way that didn't destroy it. And they succeeded in that, which is amazing. And they did that uh, by disrupting, by using American-provided HIMARS um, precision artillery systems to disrupt the Russian lines of communication supply lines to the city that went across the river uh, for long enough that by uh, the beginning of this month, the Russian forces uh, defending it were shells of themselves and had really lost the ability to defend it. And finally, the Russians made the decision to withdraw. And so the Ukrainians were able to liberate a critical city uh, without and critical terrain without destroying it, uh, which is incredibly impressive um, let's let's
0: pull back and, you know, go from, you know, uh, February or the end of February when the war started to the present. um, you're you are part of the uh, team at the Institute of the Study of War that puts out this absolutely indispensable daily account of what is going on, you know, at a granular level uh, in 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 the war. Anybody who, Is interested in this subject who has who is not following the um the isw's daily reports um is missing out and uh, everybody else is missing out too but um it's just amazing material and it was there in the first days of the war that i began to get a sense that something apparently almost historically unprecedented was going on here that this um you know mighty army versus this ragtag bunch of people uh that this was not the account that what was going on was not matching the cliche ridden idea that of course russia was going to succeed here and it was just a matter of time and uh you know maybe zelensky would be hopping on a plane and you know getting the hell out of there the way the afghan president did in 2021 um how unprecedented, so we're now, we're like seven months. Nine months. Nine months. Nine, excuse me, nine months into this. Um, the Ukrainians have, by all accounts, incurred unbelievably harsh uh, penalties on the Russian army and a number of, and it's just an eye-popping number of casualties. Uh, how unprecedented is this nation? It's a fourth of the size of of Russia, uh, you know, didn't supposedly have that much of an army to speak of all of that. And yet here we are and no one can really see a way forward for Russia to win. Exactly. Is this, is there, are there, you know, I mean, obviously there are parallels in history of a, of a, of a country, you know, uh, repelling an invader,
1: but, um, there's something astonishing going on here. Uh, there is John. Um, this is, The the closest parallels you'll find to this actually is the performance of the Israeli uh, uh, military against the successive Arab coalitions, just in terms of uh, forces that are badly outnumbered and then inflict uh, devastating defeats on overwhelmingly superior, um, numerically superior adversaries. But that's not even a fair comparison because you have Russia... You know, supposedly one of the world's leading military powers, largest nuclear arsenal in the world, supposedly some of the most advanced technology in the world, and so forth. And the Ukrainians have humiliated the Russian army uh, and inflicted, according to our US government estimates, upwards of 100,000 dead and wounded. Um, And, you know, that I, I would guess that that number is probably low, uh, honestly. So, and considering that the Russians started this invasion with 190,000. Even even taking the U.S. number, you're talking about a more than 50% casualty rate on the entire military that was initially committed. it, it, it is unprecedented. I, I've never. I don't think you will find another occasion on which a uh, a major military has initiated an a, an a, an invasion on a time and place and manner of its choosing, and been defeated so badly. Maybe you could look at the Winter War when the Soviets got hammered by the Finns. But these are th- those are the kinds of outliers that um, you know. Those are the kinds of outliers that you'd have to be talking about.
2: Brad, okay. um, <laughs> briefly ahead of the uh, the fall of Kyrgyzstan, the Ministry of Defense in Kyiv was warning rather uh, vociferously that this was likely a feint, that they were attempting to draw Ukrainian forces into a slog in the city. It would uh, be a block by block fight, would leave the city a carcass. And your analysis, subsequent analysis, suggests that as a result of Ukrainian uh, effective use of weapon, uh, uh, Western weaponry, that this outcome was prevented, not by a lack of will on the Russian part, but a lack of capability. Subsequently, in response to this peace overture, uh, we had this incredible missile barrage. It's of a kind with uh, similar missile barrages attacking civilian targets, civilian infrastructure, the goal is uh, probably being to leave Ukrainians cold and dark for the rest of the winter. But they're running out of precision weaponry. They've demonstrated all the intention they have to attack civilian targets to make this a total war against Ukrainian civilians. But we're running out of munitions that can do that and and limit collateral damage. Uh, to what degree are we going to see a winter characterized by dumb ordnance, uh, far more uh, devastating, weapons? Because that's just
1: all that's left in the arsenal. That's a great question. Um, The, the, the answer is um, the Russians are not holding anything back and they haven't been holding anything back. The only, the only sense in which they've been holding stuff back is they've been husbanding their last reserves of precision, long range precision weapons. Uh, They don't have long range Dumb weapons, because the only long-range sort of non-precision weapons that really help you are like nuclear weapons, and we're not talking about that. So you don't you don't fly long-range missiles with conventional warheads that are inaccurate, because that just that's unlikely to do you any good. So the key thing here, and this is incredibly important, the way that the Russians would deliver dumb ordnance to Ukrainian cities would be by aircraft, by manned aircraft. And this is what they did in Syria. And in fact, the Russians quite proudly showed a lot of Bombay door footage of Bear bombers, which are their old propeller driven bombers, carpet bombing Aleppo um, and can, you know just inflicting damage, amounting to, to massive war crimes on civilian areas deliberately. So why isn't that going on? Well, that's not going on because the Russians have never been able amazingly to establish air superiority over Ukraine and they are not willing to risk the small number of operational strategic bombers they have uh, in to get them shot down. They can't fly bears with the propeller-driven bombers over Ukraine. The Ukrainians will shoot them down. Um, they have more capable uh, 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 supersonic bombers, uh, uh, backfires and blackjacks. The problem the Russians have is that those are also part of their nuclear deterrent. And so if they fly them into Ukrainian airspace, the Ukrainians have a decent chance of shooting them down and the Russians are not willing to risk their nuclear capable uh, supersonic bombers. Um, And that is why they have not been carpet bombing Ukrainian cities the way they did Syrian cities. And this is why it is so incredibly important for the West to continue to supply Ukraine with reliable air defense systems. Because the minute that the Russians actually could get air superiority and could reliably start to fly manned bombers over Ukrainian cities, you would see the carpet bombing uh, begin. But the the short the that's a long answer. The long short answer is the Russians will not be carpet bombing Ukrainian cities because they can't safely fly over them. I? Oh, uh, Abe, okay, go
3: ahead. I, I have a it's related to that, and it's kind of a broad question that occurs to me. We, we talk a lot about um, what Ukraine needs at various points in the war um most in terms of high-tech weaponry and long-range weapons um what would the russians need to actually turn the tide here um it's certainly not more troops because the more troops they send the more the more that gets slaughtered is it well certainly to some extent it's it's better better weapons but is it also um uh, better strategic thinking more disciplined command and control better training some combination thereof and i ask obviously not because i want to i want to give them tips but because i'd like to get some sense about of how out of reach um their improvement might be
1: <laughs> well it's out of their reach as long as putin continues fixed in his determination to carry this war to a successful conclusion now without waiting. And as long as the West stands firm on uh, the sanctions uh, that are preventing Russia from getting chips that it needs to rebuild its uh, high-end precision uh, weapons arsenal. Um, the thing, one of the things that's been remarkable about this war is that hip, Putin has moved into full-on Hitler mode from the standpoint of the way that he interacts with his military. Uh, he has become a micromanager and he Putin understands no more about military operations than Hitler did um and so we've seen a succession of uh, circumstances including the protracted attempt to hold herson after it became apparent that that was not going to be feasible that remind me very much of an exchange that Hitler and Monstein had in I think 1943 when Monstein was was trying to uh, pull back from uh, what was then called Kharkov, now called Kharkiv. And Hitler was demanding that Kharkov must be held. And Manstein said, I'd rather lose a city than an army. Um, And that was the way Hitler rolled. Um, Putin has made a similar set of decisions. The reason why that's important is because the Russians shot their bolt early on in this war by committing pretty much all of the ready troops that they had to this fight. When that proved insufficient, what they should have done was pause, mobilize more, and take the time which would have been measured in in six months or so to train and prepare a second wave and then uh, carry on with that. That's what they should have done. It's frankly what they should do now. But Putin is unwilling to do that. And so he keeps hurling reinforcements and reserves into the fight as fast as he can generate them, which has two bad consequences. One is it means that they're not trained, they're not prepared, and they're not well equipped. But the other is that it means that they're coming in in dribs and drabs. And he's not allowing his commanders time even to amass the kind of force that might be able to achieve decisive effects. So there's there are things that Putin could do, but apparently there are calculations he's making that foreclose those options in his mind and that therefore have condemned the Russians to an incredibly stupid uh, way of fighting and have given the Ukrainians the opportunity to uh, to defeat it.
0: Okay, I want to ask you about our 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 role uh, in this, America's role in this, but first, let's uh, take a break. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www. Thefire.org. I want to, uh, Fred, I want to read to you, uh, if I could, from a piece that Todd Lindbergh published in Commentary in our July August issue called Is Ukraine Saving the West? Um, uh, he points out that, um, I'll just read this to you. We now know that the post 2014 response to Russian aggression in Ukraine was not limited to sanctions. The United States military, we can see in retrospect, was hardly idle. Helping train up the Ukrainian military's ability to resist a further Russian advance that the United States did so quietly so as not to provide a provocation Putin could use as a pretext for further aggression also seems reasonable. The willingness of the Biden administration to rule out U.S. boots on the ground in defense of Ukraine was also appropriate, especially in light of the retrospectively evident fact That American boots were already covertly on the ground in Ukraine, preparing Ukrainians for a fight and setting up channels for U.S. provision of battlefield and other intelligence, as well as supply lines for military assistance. I don't know if you sort of agree with this speculative retrospection, but um, clearly something remarkable has gone on here in America's relation to this war and uh, we are living in a world on the right in which there is an entire crew of people that sees our behavior as reckless and, you know, threatening World War Three. You know, they don't want to be in a conflict with Putin. Some of them like Putin. Some of them think that we have no interest in Ukraine, that Ukraine screwed Trump or whatever you want to let Zelensky wasn't, didn't, you know, on the perfect phone call, didn't do what Trump wanted. It doesn't even really matter, but that... The United States here deserves some credit, not just for sending the Heimar weapons over, but really over the last eight years in making possible this stalwart Ukrainian stand.
1: Is that accurate? Um, oh, there's a lot. There's a lot there, John. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Look, um, in the first place, I I mean, I think we always have to start this by saying it's the Ukrainians who made this all possible um, by reaching out and by um, reforming themselves, which they have done aggressively for the last eight years, uh, trying to bring themselves into line with NATO standard as best they could and transforming the culture of their military, which has shown the United States has helped them, not just the United States, other NATO allies, the same constituency, the same isolationist constituency you're talking about likes to pretend that the United States is the only one in NATO that ever does anything. There were Canadian troops in Ukraine, there were Polish troops in Ukraine, there were uh, lots of NATO allies assisting Ukraine, trying to help Ukraine get to uh, higher levels of defensive capability. And that was essential, and you are seeing that play out. Um, And then, of course, the United States and many other uh, countries provided Ukraine not just with HIMARS, with a lot, but with lots of other systems um, and advice, without which the Ukrainians would not have been able to harness the courage that they had uh, to fight so skillfully. So this has been taught Todd is right to call out a long-term investment, um, candidly, in exactly the kind of sort of almost offshore balancing that the people who are very close to isolationists, but not quite isolationists advocate. And it is noteworthy that the United States for good or ill is fighting this war to the last Ukrainian. <laughs> I, find that, I find that a morally dubious position myself, but it needs to color our discussion about the costs the United States is bearing. Well, we're, we're, we're writing a lot of checks and we're sending a lot of equipment But we are American soldiers are not dying in this war. Uh, That was a choice of the Biden administration. Um, We can we can revisit that choice, you know, at our leisure, sometime when the war is over. I'll make the observation that whether or not it was wise to involve U.S. troops in this, it was certainly unwise to promise the Russians that we wouldn't when we were trying to deter them. It's never a good idea to tell someone you're trying to deter what you won't do. Um, But uh, that's all water under the, under the bridge. Um, so, you know, our role has been essential here, but it's been quite limited. And so basically if you're going if, to, if you're going to take the position that the U S role in this war has been too much, you're taking the, the position of a much older Lindbergh.
0: <laughs> I, let me ask you about return on investment then, because you're saying it's limited, but you know, again, to hear some of these people tell it, oh my God, it's sixty billion dollars. Oh, you know, who's monitoring the spending and all of that? Uh, if the if our major military adversary on the planet, having decided to wage a war on European soil for the first time uh, in three quarters of a century, um, is tied down and on the you know potentially on the verge of a historic humiliation that will maybe knock it out of contention in this way as a threat to its near abroad its neighbors and all of that relative to other costs of war on the planet earth isn't this like an astounding return on investment that we are seeing here in terms of what we're putting out versus what we might be getting back strategically and
1: tactically and, you know, oh, yeah. the uh, this event. is the, you'll, the United States will never spend better defense dollars than the dollars it's spending to help the Ukrainians destroy the Russian military in Ukraine. Um, because the Ukrainians have effectively destroyed the conventional Russian military. And, but we need to, I need to let your your listeners in on a little secret here, John, the war was never just about Ukraine. <laughs> Putin's war aims, stated war aims going into this, was included the destruction of NATO. They included the, the separation of the U.S. from Europe, and the reduction of the U.S. to a power on a par with Russia, China, Iran, uh, Brazil, anything else you care to name, just a regional power that abandoned its global pretensions. This was um, this was always central to uh, Putin's. Approach. And the reason why that matters is because there was every reason to assess that if Putin succeeded here, the next step was going to be further pressure and possibly attack on NATO. So we fundamentally had a choice that was similar to the choice presented to the British in the interwar period. The war is coming to you. Where would you like to fight it? And they passed up many opportunities to fight the war on more advantageous terms on lands far away of which they knew little as Chamberlain uh, sure. said. Um, we have not done so. So we are fighting the war to defend NATO in Ukraine. I'm sorry, the Ukrainians are fighting the war to defend NATO in <laughs> Ukraine and are have made it so that there is no, there will be no invasion threat of NATO for years to come because of the sacrifices that they've made. That is a phenomenal investment. Again, these are the best defense dollars America will ever spend.
2: I mean, a corollary to that observation is that the Ukrainian war is predicated on our non-responses to, for example, a cross-border invasion of uh, of Estonia, the seizing of a of a border guard in Estonia in 2014, ahead of the Crimea invasion. I, we keep talking about Western exports to... To Ukraine, and I mean, it strikes me that probably, and others have said this too, that probably our most effective export has been the um, the communication of a uh, and the adoption on Ukraine's part of a competent NCO corps, a semi autonomous NCO corps that can um, maneuver on the battlefield absent Hitler like instructions from the center, Uh, but. If we're still talking about Western ordnance and Western ordinance is responsible for Kyrgyzstan and Western ordinance is responsible for the destruction of the Russian army, I keep going back to the idea that there's no way for Moscow to de-escalate this sort of situation in the absence of some terrifying nuclear standoff that shakes Western faith in this, in this campaign. I was of the impression that there wouldn't be this kind of resolve on the part of Western capitals who wants to die for Danzig, but there is, and it has to be shaken somehow. How else is Putin to accomplish that, save for striking fear, the fear of God in the hearts of uh, Western capitals?
1: Well, so we've got a very aggressive Russian information operation ongoing uh, that has as one of its primary purposes, making sure that we say nuclear war every in every other sentence. <laughs> and the purpose, oh, I'm, I'm really serious. No, I know um, I know and,
0: and people and people a, are That's of a the, recognition uh, laugh not a Yeah, not, yeah and people yeah, are of the
2: impression that even acknowledging this is somehow advancing Moscow's aims, but I don't I think it's irresponsible
1: not to. Well, well I don't know. Fred- we have to Well, we have to acknowledge it, but it's a problem because we do also need to recognize that yes, we absolutely have to talk about it and take it seriously, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you there's no circumstance in which Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. I am prepared to tell sit here and tell you that there's virtually no chance that Putin uses nuclear weapons against NATO, or that we get all the way to Armageddon, as our president keeps um, saying. Um, That's extraordinarily unlikely, and we're actually not. Well, we're not doing ourselves any favors by um, feeding that particular Russian propaganda line that uh, anything that we do to stand up to Putin uh, can lead to Armageddon. That's that's not accurate, and it's not helpful. there are battlefield nuclear uses that I could see Putin uh, feeling, you know, deciding that he needs to uh, or wants to engage in in Ukraine, in extremis, when he has decided that it is the only way to stop the Ukrainians from just wrecking the remainder of the Russian army in uh, in Ukraine itself. Um, he would pay a high price for that in many ways. We find that prospect rightly extraordinarily upsetting because it would be a catastrophe for the world for Putin to uh, establish that nuclear weapons can again be used in war. That would be a horrific precedent to set and something we should be extraordinarily upset about. But we are so focused on that that we are missing the danger of setting an even worse precedent, which is that nuclear blackmail can succeed. Because if we surrender to Putin, if we try to drive the Ukrainians to surrender or make an unacceptable series of concessions after the Ukrainians have defeated the Russian conventional military, because we are afraid that Putin will use nuclear weapons, then we need to ask ourselves what conclusions we think other states in the world will draw. I think you can be pretty confident that Xi Jinping will look at that and say, you know, I might be inclined to take more of a risk over Taiwan, because at the end of the day, if that doesn't look like it's working out, all I have to do is threaten to use nuclear weapons and the Americans will surrender it anyway. And actually, maybe I just start by threatening nuclear weapons and then I don't have to fight at all. You also have to ask questions like, what conclusions do you think the Iranians will draw about the desirability and urgency of getting nuclear weapons? Now, there's a flip side to this whole nuclear discussion as well, which is extremely important. Ukraine, as you know, had a large nuclear arsenal until 1994. It was the arsenal inherited from the Soviet Union. It gave up that nuclear arsenal under tremendous pressure from us, gave it back to the Russian Federation in exchange for an agreement called the Budapest Memorandum signed by the US, the UK and Russia in which all three states jointly guaranteed the territorial integrity of Ukraine, which at the time included Crimea, in exchange for Ukraine handing over those weapons. Now, do you think that Russia would have invaded Ukraine if Ukraine had still had a large nuclear arsenal? (laughs) I think probably not. So what conclusions will our allies, whom we have been pressing not to acquire nuclear weapons with the promise that we would defend them draw if we allow putin to win significant gains by threatening nuclear weapons against a state that we pressured into giving up its nuclear program this is we this is a problem we have to think all the way through and not just stop at the initial uh, this is
2: why I've been saying for a long time. This is the conversation we need to have. I don't think it advances Russian interest. It steals our resolve to face down that kind of crisis. The president does us right. no favors when he skips all the way past the flow chart to a strategic nuclear exchange and the end of the world. Exactly, war.
1: exactly yeah. right. I
0: agree. Right. I agree with you. Can we? Okay. Can we? Can we get to? So put on your historian's hat for a minute, um, because um, you are very much part of a. A, a historical tradition that views history as contingent and not, you know, the result. Of, the result of you know, Im- Im- inexorable long-term, long-term forces, yeah. forces, or 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 the result of nothing, you know, which is sort of Tolstoy's point, right? Because <laughs> um, we have all these moments over the last twenty years that seem to have led to this, that are contingent moments, like. The biggest one, the one that we've been talking about here since, you know, since August of, of uh, 2021, was the pullout from Afghanistan and the question of whether or not that provided Putin with some kind of a, in his own head, a green
1: light. Uh, look, yeah, look, it's, it's, it is, it is relatively straightforward to... um trace a significant change in Russian rhetoric across the disastrous US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, there was a certain kind of Russian rhetoric in the summer of 2021 that was uh, relatively continuous and consistent with what we have been hearing from the Russians for some time. And then as we got in, into and through uh, August of uh, 2021, the Russian rhetoric starts to change and um, it's hard to avoid drawing the conclusion that Putin did in fact see our determination, our announcement that we were gonna withdraw from Afghanistan and then the way in which we did it as an encouragement. It's very hard not to, not to see that. I can't prove it, but it's, it's hard not to see the correlations there.
0: So there, uh, and I then just, go, I'll go backwards just one more point, which is so you have that uh, point, you have Trump talking down NATO, in the trump administration and then of course the biggie which is putin annexes crimea and with the exception of what what, what todd lindberg was talking about in the piece that i quoted uh, and whatever we were doing quietly we essentially assented to i mean you know in some fashion we put on sanctions and stuff but basically nobody did anything about
1: the about the annexation actually actually john that we did something and especially the europeans did something that was worse than nothing. Um, And this is important as people are talking about the, the, talking prematurely and inappropriately in my judgment, talking about the need to get to negotiations now, which is wrong. Um, What actually happened after 2014 was that the Europeans panicked and the French and the Germans got so excited about the idea of having their own independent policy that was somehow going to bring peace to the world, that they allowed Russia to engage in pseudo negotiations and then an agreement with Ukraine called the Minsk Accords in which Russia was treated as an impartial mediator. I'm not kidding. The formal position of Russia in those talks was as a mediator, not a party to the conflict. That was Putin's condition for playing. And the French and the Germans were content to allow that fiction to persist and then attempted to defend the Minsk Accords long after it became clear that the Russians were in fact determined to violate them even while they were loudly complaining that the Ukrainians were violating them, which was not true. And the French and the Germans would spend a lot of time nattering at the Ukrainians about how they needed to show their goodwill as the Russians continued to occupy Ukrainian territory and be treated as mediators in those negotiations. That was the full on appeasement world In which Putin was making calculations about what what the West would do when he contemplated this invasion. And we need to have that burning in our minds as we listen to people advocate a rapid return to negotiations now. And when Zelensky says there will be no Minsk 3, what he's saying is, we will not tolerate a circumstance in which a Russian invading army is treated as if it were an impartial mediating force on our territory, which was what Minsk too did. So we need to reckon with that legacy, which both encouraged Putin and sets a very bad uh, precedent for future kinds of talks.
3: Speaking uh, of, of countries looking on, um, I think obviously Beijing also was reading um america americans willingness to to defend its interests and its its posture generally uh, when when the afghan afghanistan debacle happened and um beijing is also looking on now uh, uh at at the war in ukraine to what extent is it realistic to think that um a sound putin defeat here could slow China's move on Taiwan?
1: I think that it um, I, I think that we see clear indications that it that it has occurred to Xi to worry about whether his generals might not be doing with him what Putin's generals did to Putin, namely, lie through their butts about what their capabilities actually were. Um, And I think we are seeing indications that she is taking a hard look at his military capabilities and thinking this matter through. Um, I will tell you one thing that I'm confident of, which is that if we allow Putin to pull a major strategic gain out of the debacle that he's created for himself, she will look at that and say, ah, I can outweigh the West. Perseverance will carry me to victory, even in the face of initial setbacks. I should not be afraid of trying and having things not go well. Whereas, if the West is actually firm and if we actually stand by Ukraine, stare down the repeated Russian hints at nuclear threats, and impose it to de- help the Ukrainians impose a defeat on Putin, I do think that she will look at that and say, instead, "Hmm. Well, the West is not behaving the way that I thought that they would." And I think I shouldn't be quite so confident that I will be able to coerce and cajole them uh, into surrendering, especially if things look like they're not going well for me. And in that sense, I do this is this is all going to weigh on Xi uh, one way and another. And we need to understand that we can still snatch defeat from the jaws of victory here. We still can. If the Russians end up uh, with anything like the territory they currently have, which is something above, uh, you know, upwards of 100,000 square kilometers more than they had at the start of this war of, cr- of strategically critical terrain. If they end up, uh, even in a ceasefire with any significant portion of that, she is going to look at that and say, oh, okay, sacrifice is worth it. And that would be a devastating message to send.
0: Uh, okay, let me, uh, let me take a quick break and talk to everybody about our advertiser, Bambi. Uh, when running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. Uh, they want to know when what are meal and break requirements. How do you handle employees that doesn't, doesn't show up to work? Uh, what if somebody smells bad? All kinds of weird stuff, and uh, you better talk to Bambi because this is a way to deal with HR issues in a direct, simple, and cost-effective way, astoundingly cost-effective. You get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance. Then your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost 80 dollars a year, Bambi. Starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to bambee.com right now and type in commentary magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B A M B E E.com, Bambi.com. Type in commentary magazine. Uh Fred, very quickly on the news yesterday of the um missile that hit uh inside poland and killed two people um both uh the president yesterday in an extremely confused appearance because it sounded like he had made a mistake he said it is unlikely that that the missile came from russia uh stoltenberg the head of uh nato or the head of military forces of nato i think this morning said it's their estimation that the missile was a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile that went astray because the Russians fired a hundred missiles at Ukraine and the Ukrainians needed to respond. Are there any, do you see any uh, consequences or, you know, changes in policy or anything from this uh, admittedly tragic, you know, result of what goes on when you're a country that is neighboring two countries at war?
1: Well, hang on a second because, um, the, there is virtually nothing of military significance that the Russians were shooting at in Lviv, which is uh, something about 70 kilometers from the Polish border. Um, the purpose of the Russian attacks on Lviv was to destroy uh, Ukrainian infrastructure and specifically energy infrastructure in order to impose costs on the Ukrainian people. In other words, it was a deliberate t- attacking, uh, targeting of civilian populations uh, for no military purpose. Uh, which is a war crime. And it was doing so uh, at locations near uh, the NATO border knowingly. And in that circumstance, ukraine it, it appears that Ukrainian air defense uh, missile went astray uh, when defending against attacks being conducted against civilian infrastructure near the NATO border. So this is not simply a tragic occurrence that occurs when there's war going on in a neighboring state, it's a tragic occurrence when there's a war going on in a neighboring state and the attacker is so irresponsible and so unconcerned with law of armed conflict that it regularly fires uh, missile salvos close enough to the border that errant air defense missiles might land in neighboring countries. Also, by the way, that errant Russian missiles could land in NATO states because Russian error, uh, targeting error has been shown to be large enough for that to be a risk. So uh, the, this is this is not just an oopsie. Right.
0: Uh, so you are essentially assigning what we you know, it's not I don't think this is precisely in the Geneva Convention, but the but the but the uh, laws of war would say that Russia is the responsible party for the deaths of the two poles even if the missile was not theirs well would have I, i'm been, not an would international have been... lawyer so i'm not okay gonna, but I'm i mean there would have been that. there would have been no ukrainian
1: missile correct. fired had there not been missiles fired on lviv there would have been no ukrainian missiles fired anywhere near polish territory had there not been missiles fired on lviv correct
0: right. okay. okay so uh, i'm sorry john i don't want to interrupt no i was just gonna i honestly was just gonna sort of take one 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 final pause for a final advertiser here There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in, just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise, like the Acton Institute There's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating the, the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org/slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Noah, you were saying.
2: Yeah, so not to um, lend too much legitimacy <clears throat> or credence to political narratives advanced by. American political observers who launch right into the, oh, we're, we're going, we're going to get into World War III here. They're advancing a domestic political agenda with those observations. Nevertheless, when a lot of ordinances flying next to NATO borders, accidents can happen. There are a ton of moving pieces here. And it takes a lot of deliberation in a very short period of time not to respond to what you perceive to be an incoming threat. Uh, particularly, I'm worried particularly about a, a Uh, the presence of a lot of competing assets over the Black Sea but nevertheless the prospect here that one of these events could happen and it could be met with a response in real time that would have a cascading escalating effect seems very real to me and this is the sort of thing that we shouldn't necessarily dismiss defensive weapons offensive weapons what have you what have you we reacted to this with a lot of patience and, and calm and and investigations and that's great, but maybe it doesn't happen next time.
1: Well, I I, I, I disagree. I mean, the only circumstance in which there's, there's really high stakes involved in instant response is uh, if you think that the Russians are using uh, or preparing to use nuclear weapons. Um, otherwise, I think the risk of accidental war here is extremely low. Um, the Russians have been very careful in general terms to avoid shooting into NATO territory because they're terrified that NATO will enter this war because they know perfectly well that the first thing that happens is that they lose the rest of their conventional military. Um, And NATO has no need for nuclear escalation uh, against Russia. So they've been generally pretty careful about this. So what can actually happen? Okay, so this uh, I'll accept that this was a Ukrainian air defense missile. Let's imagine it had been a Russian missile. What would have happened? Okay, well, the polls would have gone for NATO Article 4, which is consultations. Let's even imagine that the polls go for Article 5. This is not a, a pre, you know, the, what people imagine the pre World War I situation to be that everybody's got war plans locked and loaded. And the minute you do X, then we're all going to war. That isn't, that isn't what would happen. Um, even if Article 5 were activated on behalf of Poland, there's no immediate obvious therefore clause to that. It doesn't follow that the NATO armies mobilize on the eastern Polish border and drive into Russia. Uh, what would happen is that NATO would have consultations about what is the best way to secure Poland or what, or any attack NATO member state against, uh, subsequent Russian attack and so on, and there would be a lot of deliberation because NATO is a deliberative alliance, and since there is no threat of a Russian ground invasion that would need to be met in real time, and since NATO air defenses are adequate to prevent the Russians from conducting large-scale air operations, there would be time for consultations. So I do think we have to get out of our minds the notion that there is some plausible scenario in which you know missiles start flying and the next thing you know where it's World War III, uh, because that's just, that is actually the least likely scenario uh, to happen in all of this, NATO isn't built that way. The situation doesn't require it. The president has no desire to get into World War Three, and neither does Russia. So I think that I, I really think we sh- we do not need to be panicked about that prospect. Uh, I want to I want
0: to switch gears now and uh, and and move on to the protests in Iran, the Institute for the Study War is also doing a daily assessment of... That's actually Critical research. Threats Project, team. Excuse me, that's, that's a critical the Critical Threats Project. I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. I apologize. Right, so that's the Critical okay. Threats Project. To, I, you know, I put, it's all in... It's, it's all okay, sort of it's, like it's Kagan. I, it's like know, Kagan I know, world. I, know, I, know. I think of it as Kagan world. <laughs> you, work, you work with your wife, Kim, and, and the two of you are you know are just uh, uh, astonishing sources of, of information and analysis. So the Critical Threats Project... Uh, the the protests um uh in iran which um you know just continue um i don't know we're 50 50 days or something like that a little longer i've lost um, track but
1: yeah something like yeah that.
0: um and um we're not watching it and we're not seeing it here in the way that we were just in the first couple of days but um are they accelerating Uh, yesterday's yesterday's bulletin from you had former president Khatami saying we got to do something uh things are going in the wrong he was he said the regime should not be threatened or should not be at risk because it's so important but to have the former president say these protests are legitimate in effect and dealing with a legitimate concern uh, on the part of the people that needs to be answered. That's that in itself seems to have been some kind of crossing of a Rubicon, unless I'm very much mistaken.
1: Well, um, yes. Although it's, I mean, we can't, we, we can't overread uh, Khatami, um because he, you know, Hotami is the one the regime has censored and prevented not only from speaking, but from being spoken about uh, since uh since his time in office. Um, so I do think it's important not to not to overread Khatami, but what I think is most significant is the fact that yesterday, I believe we had um, the highest number of protests uh, that we have seen in this entire um, protest wave. Um, and I'm, my, my internet, as you know, I'm having trouble, so I'm having a hard time pulling this up rapidly. Um, but, uh, I think we had 54, 55 something distinct protests in 40 something cities. And this is a remarkable thing because this is not only after the regime has reportedly arrested upwards of 15,000, uh, Iranians sentenced at least one protester to death, uh, killed scores of people and so on. Um, but also because there, this, these protests marked didn't mark any anniversary or didn't mark any any commemoration from this protest wave. These were protests called to link this protest wave back to the 2019 protests, the, what the Iranians call the Aban protests for the month that they occurred in. Um, and so this, this was entirely organized uh, protest. And that is extremely notable. This wasn't spontaneous. It wasn't localized. It was national and it was organized and it was called and it was huge. And that uh, tells us something about the organizational capabilities of uh, people in this protest movement and about Iranians willingness to go out into the street and risk getting arrested, tortured and killed um, in defense of principles that have now transcended the original cause of this protest wave because this wasn't just about hijab, this wasn't just about Masa Amini, this wasn't just about a previous protest martyr, this was a this was a protest against the regime across the country with people saying explicitly revolutionary things. Um this is of this is we've not seen this before in any previous protest wave under the Islamic Republic. Uh, it's a very traumatic moment, and we must't understate it,
0: so I guess the, you know, uh, again, we are talking now about something unprecedented. certainly in Iran, unprecedented potentially unprecedented in you know what we might take as a kind of I don't know what what you would call the regime anymore on the you know in the sort of uh Hannah Arendt scale you know where where you know what point between authoritarian and totalitarian you would you would declare the regime um uh Ray Takea in our in our magazine points out that um Iran's always been different. There was this one thing that Iran did, which is that it it it, it allowed not that totalitarian regimes don't, but it had allowed elections. It allowed there to be a little bit of you know steam release. They would choose the candidates, and they made sure the candidates weren't you know outside of a relatively narrow band. But the Iranian people are actually used to being able to express themselves to some degree, some limited degree, um, uh, at the at the polls. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, there, this, there may be less of a sense of hopelessness in terms of what, what might happen, um, is my sense, uh, from what Ray talks about in his brilliant article on the Iranian protests and how it compares to the 1970s, the late 1970s. Of course, the difference between then and now is there was the Ayatollah Khomeini in Paris as a, as a, as a figure around which the the protesters could, um, you know, link arms. Um, And there doesn't seem to be such a figure now, but maybe there doesn't need to be because we're in an entirely different kind of situation.
1: Well, that is the, I mean, that is the obvious uh, and critical difference. And it has some important implications. I don't know that it means that the Iranian protest movement can't Morph into something that ends up overthrowing the regime. I actually think that it's you can see the death of the regime from here down certain paths, Um, but it means that there will be no natural leader around whom a new government can rapidly coalesce. Um, So it may not be good news for the regime, but it may be problematic news for us. And this is one of the things that I'm alarmed about, because I can see very... So one of the characteristics of the 1979 revolution was that Iran, both because of the nature of the revolution and because Saddam then invaded almost immediately, Iran imploded, right? Almost all of the energy of that revolution was focused internally. And it was only in 1982 that they they established the Quds Force and they started playing around around the region. And it took a long time for them really to get serious about um, external operations there. Um, I am, I don't think that that will be the case this time. I think that if this regime goes down in this way, it's much more likely to explode. And its explosion uh, can have very significant effects on us and on our allies in the region. And that concerns me, John, because I don't think that we are remotely ready about ready for that. And I think we we're, we're, we have an administration and general political environment in which we've just decided that we're done with the Middle East, and we refuse to think seriously about the possibility we might ever have to engage in any other kind of conflict in the Middle East. And I am not sure the Middle East is done with us. And so I, I am alarmed because I see paths uh, through a regime collapse to a very, very dangerous situation for us that we're just not thinking about or preparing for at all and i think we really need to start thinking that thinking that matter through even as we think about what we can do to help the iranian people in this struggle against this vicious increasingly autocratic regime well i just have to say
0: i'm 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 thrilled to know that you are there when the united states is it has been in the past at risk in the middle east of terrible consequences you and uh you and uh, general kane and others uh, you know, came up with the ideas that were that backed the surge and uh, you know, changed the dynamic of the approach of the United States uh, in Iraq in a in a manner that turned uh, you know, a, a horrifying uh, potential defeat into something uh, uh, much more uh, in line with our our interests and our future, despite the fact that people still seem to poo poo that anything good came of 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 the war in Iraq and so if you know if that was something that you could do as a service to the country back in 2006 and 2007 maybe you can enlighten <laughs> you can enlighten a uh hostile state department not that they weren't hostile in 2006 <laughs> and 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 also and also a republican party that is desperately in need of fresh of 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 fresh thinking on foreign policy that does not that is not explicitly uh, isolationist and withdrawal crazy withdrawal crazy the way the the sort of the leading lights of this new Natcon movement is so um go to it i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm stirred it's well, time for you to tell everybody what to do <laughs> with 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 iran thank you thank you you. what to do with iraq and you can tell us what to do with iran i i am i'm there i'm there uh, (laughs) following i'm not leading from behind i will be following from behind anyway (laughs) fred thank you so much frederick kagan of the uh of the american enterprise institute's critical threats project and again the daily reports on what is going on uh, in russia ukraine uh at the institute uh, for the study of war um, we'll be back tomorrow. So for Noah, Abe, and the absent Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.